Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, part two of my three-part look at the life and times of the important comics historian Bill Shelley. As you probably know, Bill wrote biographies of such important comics figures as James Warren, Harvey Kurtzman, and John Stanley. I'm joined by Frank Young, generally considered to be the expert at the life and times of John Stanley. In our interview, we talk about his long friendship with Bill, um, their shared passion for John Stanley, and Bill's legacy. I think it's 40 minutes of great listening, and I hope you enjoy it. It starts right after this commercial. I the two of you first meet? We didn't meet until 2014 when I was uh, living in Everett. Not the uh, not the best year of my life, but uh, I was living there and he reached out and contacted me and told me he was working on a book on John Stanley, which was at first a real shock to me because I had been working towards that for several years and not getting anywhere with it. But uh, I bust over to Seattle and and visited with him and and felt like he was going to do a good job on it. So, and then I, you know, did whatever I could to to help him in terms of like supplying comics and you know double checking information and he he had a real really good end to a lot of people who I couldn't get to talk to me which were some of the old old time members of comics fandom and uh, I tried to contact some of them and just they didn't know me from from anyone else and were a little wary but he he was able to get through to some people like Don Phelps who had some great information that he'd just been sitting on for all these years you kind of work together in a way um, it's an interesting position because you were well known as the one of the foremost Stanley scholars must have been an interesting kind of conversation about whether he would kind of go into your lane, I suppose. I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying that. He realized that I had done uh, a lot of research just digging in and going through all these old comics and based on what I what I knew about the, the telltale things of, of John Stanley's work, you know, just making making decisions and hopefully well informed decisions that uh, just I have done a lot of the spade work on figuring out what Stanley had done and discerning whether stories that were thought to be 
of his authorage were or weren't. He seemed to respect the work I'd done and, you know, and called on and asked my opinion on things. He was also sharing information, you know, confidentially that he had been finding out. And I was really impressed at the, the level of stuff he was, he was tracking down. The, the thing that I think everyone commented about around Bill was just his level of detail and research and how he just seemed so dogged in what he did. And I talked to him back in April for this podcast, and we were talking about the Warren book, of course. And one of the questions I asked him was, how did you get started on, on researching Warren? And it was pretty clear that, like, he didn't have a major affinity for Jim Warren as an editor, or he wasn't even really a creator, um, but that this was just a book he kind of wanted to do as for enjoyment as much as anything. And he said uh, he did, he kind of started with what he called the basics of research. He went back and studied housing records and tried to find everything, inter- all the interviews that... Warren had ever done and everything possible he would just kind of gather and then from there kind of move out and start talking to people but I was really impressed by just how ordinary it was for him to to pursue this incredible amount of detail in researching something and I kind of wish that I had had I had that level of patience it was a level of kind of professionalism in the research that I strive for but I don't think I hit very often one time gave me this uh, slight little finger-wagging lecture on uh, being more diligent as a researcher. I was, I was trying to explain to him that he had come across information that when I was digging around in the early 2000s was just plain not available because it hadn't been digitized and put out in the world to the internet yet. I think he kind of misinterpreted that, and but I I, uh, I let him I let him speak his piece because it was a good reminder. He set a good example for wanting to try your best and and go back and and dig and see if there was if there wasn't something else there that you might have overlooked. Where do you think he got that? I don't know ability, uh, uh, passion. Because um, I find with a lot of my fantasy writing, especially, I will often stop at the point that I think it's good enough. But he would push through and find another level that I think made him really special. He had a journalist's desire to, to dig down and get the full story. I don't believe he ever worked as, uh, you know, he was, he was never a... Uh, a news writer or anything like that that, I, that I'm aware of, but he had that similar kind of focus. If a subject interested him, and I think every, every subject that he wrote about, if it wasn't a passion when he started it, like it was interesting to see him get into John Stanley's work. You know, hearing him t- talk about reading some stuff for the first time that I was familiar with, and it was just—it was kind of fun to see him get what a what a good writer Stanley was, and and what great comics he made. You know, just just really neat to to share in his enthusiasm. 
do you think you almost need that level of distance to write something more fair? Or I'm kind of wrestling with that myself. A, a certain level of yeah, objectivity? I, I, yeah, I think, I think it does help because it gives you more perspective. It, it was like when I was recently uh, doing my book on Cecil Jensen, the cartoonist who did that comic strip Elmo that I put out in book form. I, I liked his work, but I didn't know anything about him. And that somehow made, made the task of trying to, to find out who he was and what his life story was like, it was more like solving a riddle. And I think that's, that's how Bill might have approached it. His, his research struck me as having the viewpoint of the problem solver. He would just say, okay, this person worked here and here and here in five successive years. How did he get those jobs and what caused him to change to this other company? The example of the research he did with Stanley, I found myself emulating his approach when I was working on this other cartoonist that I knew nothing about, really. See, I, I imagine you as kind of like two dogs that are kind of staring at each other and then eventually become friendly with each other. Yeah, I mean, we were, uh, one of the first things that he said to me after my, I think I visited once or twice, and he just said, you know, how come we didn't become friends sooner? Huh. And I, I felt the same way because I, I just felt he had a, a real appreciation and enthusiasm for comics, very level-headed. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, if, if there can be such a thing as a level-headed passion, that's what Bill <laughs> Shelley had. We would talk about various comics creators and aspects of their, of their work that we that we both admired and he had he had a very a very scholarly way of looking at comics you know he was taking them seriously there, it wasn't you know the, the typical picture of a fanboy he a fanboy he was not but a historian and an appreciator and this was the same of, of music and and film and even fiction he had a, a really deep and genuine appreciation of of the popular arts. You know, just very very level headed about it. Yeah, I think level headed is a great word for him. Did you read his autobiography, Sense of Wonder? I did. I, was... I, I uh, once when we became friends, uh, every every book that he put out, I would get a a copy in the mail with a with a nice a nice note written in it. It was great to read the, you know, the, the new version of Sense of Wonder. I think that was a big thing for him to just get his story out in the world. You know, as, as lives go, if you can liken a person's life to, say, a, a stage play, his had a really good third act. He emerged from being away from the world of comics and, and fandom and reconnected with these people that he 
you know, who were all part of this original movement and then found a really solid place in the comics community as a, as a first-rate biographer. And I think his book on Kurtzman was a real breakthrough for him. It, it was a really powerful portrait of a comics creator who's always been kind of a hero of mine. But, you know, as talented a person as he was, he had some, he had some, some flaws that I think kept him from reaching the potential he might have gotten. And, and Bill seemed to, seemed to understand that and did, I thought, a, a really impressive job of, of saying that without, There's just such a, he's so good at creating that through line for the story where he just built it in, in a kind of novelistic way. I mean, I guess that's a feature of most of the great biographies is that there's just an inherent drama, but also a sense of inevitability about them in some ways. Yes. And of course, Bill's, uh... Bill's story is about kind of moving away from that inevitability and having a great third act, as you were saying. I, I totally agree. I found out a couple of days after Bill passed that he was apparently working on a biography of Steve Ditko. Yeah, Gary mentioned that too. He had started working on that. I I found out about this because I, I um, had a conversation with a, a fellow named Mike Britt who said that he had sent copies of some letters that uh, Steve Ditko had written him in the mid-50s. Apparently, Britt was like the first the first guy in comics fandom to get in touch with Steve Ditko. Hmm. You know, it was, a, it was a total surprise because uh, uh, Ditko was so notoriously not interested in talking about his past. And then I guess his... Uh, there were some, some family issues to deal with before he could really even seriously consider writing the book. That might have, that might have been Bill's crowning achievement as a biographer. I just can't think of anyone who would be a better choice to write a book like that because he would steer away from any of the kind of sensationalistic aspects of Ditko's life and also do the research into the philosophies that really kept Ditko going. I mean... He's such a daunting person to talk about because of that level of intellectual rigor you have to give him, just by kind of by definition. Ditko ultimately was a kind of an unknowable person, and that's an incredible challenge for a biographer. And I think uh, the John Stanley book was could be seen as a as a warm up for a project like Ditko. Because uh, Stanley had a a fair amount of ambivalence about what he had done in comics, that that work had any importance or meaning to him. To to go from that to a person like Steve Ditko, who was, I think, passionate about being a comics creator, to, you know, he passed away, but so on his own terms... I mean, he's kind of the Greta Garbo of comics. 
Yeah, and Gary made an interesting point when we were talking about Ditko, uh, which is in one ways he seems like the most complex person because we just don't know much about him. But on the flip side, he may be the least complex person in a way because if you can decode the symbols in his work, all of it is right there on the surface. Because, I mean, as you said, even up to his last days, uh, the books he put out through Robin Snyder were reflecting the way he was looking at the world. And I just think that's a fascinating dichotomy that I would find daunting to write about. I think if anybody could have done, could have done it, it would have been Bill Shelley. Yeah. Yeah, so did you get to know him better um, through the years? Um, you have some stories to share about uh, things you were able to do together before he passed? Yeah, I, I, my, my biggest regret with Bill is that I didn't get to spend more time with him. Mm-hmm. because I felt that by the time I had, had moved to Portland in in 2015, uh, I would go up to Seattle several times a year and and try to, to see him every time I went up. And we sort of got into a, a pattern where I'd you know check with him and make sure that the time I was coming up worked for him. And then I'd usually stay over at his house and we'd, uh, we had a, a definite ritual. There was a Mexican restaurant nearby and we'd go and have dinner there. And then just sit in his living room and talk for hours. And the conversations, they were, they were great conversations. And something I've, I've noticed about a lot of great conversations in my life is that I don't remember much about them because they were so absorbing while we were while we were having them. And we we would watch movies. You know, he had he had he had great taste in movies. You know, one thing that I'm re- that I'm really grateful for is that he uh, he convinced me to give a Jim Jarmusch movie called Patterson a second shot. So I I tried watching it and. Though I saw that it had had some merit, I just was not clicking with it. But he got me to watch it again, and I I totally got it. Then he one time showed me a a documentary about the rhythm and blues composer uh, Doc Thomas, which was just a terrifically moving film. You know, it was it was just it was just great to share that with him. You know, I just. It's just great to, you know, a friend that you can just, you know, just sit and talk about anything with. It was a very comfortable friendship. A very, you know, I felt very accepted by him. You know, he was just a great person to spend time with. Every time I talked to him, which was quite a bit less than you did, I always felt like I was so welcomed. And yes, yeah. He had that, he had that, it's like, as, as I said not very articulately at the beginning of our talk he definitely had to get to know you you know once he had that sense that things were clicking he would really really warm up and you really got to see what a a kind and 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 smart and and witty person he was it was just great to see where our conversations would go they you know, we talk we talk politics. Uh, you know, the the year of the the Trump, and, and I'm air quoting.
reporting here election, we both were talking about how traumatizing that was and and how how divisive the the world seemed to have gotten in the wake of that, as did many people. You know, it, it just felt like any 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 old thing that came up was a comfortable ground for conversation with him. Yeah, you know, you're making me smile because I'm thinking about last time I saw him in April. I went over to his house. I live, as you know, in Everett. He just lived over in Shoreline. I arrived at our planned time for the interview, and he brought he had me hang out with him in the living room for a bit, and we talked for like easily ninety minutes about really everything under the sun, um, his generation of comics fandom, my generation of comics fandom, which is a popular topic with us, our our various books, the American Complex Chronicles series, because he wrote the. 1950s book and I wrote uh, several of the other books in the series and the challenges on that um, and we had a, he just had such insights into kind of just the day-to-day life of being a creative person um, delivering work about other creative people and yeah. and that's a level of conversation you don't always get with others I mean especially like he and I, he, you know, literally like these these history books. How many people in our are in our little cult of people who write comics history books? Um, there can't be more than a hundred of us, and I feel like we're part of this interesting little, you know, fraternity in a way. The the people who if pressed to talk about their work are guaranteed to make the eyes of most people glaze over quickly. <laughs> and he was he was working on one of those. Uh, those comic book chronicle books uh, when he when he passed away. The last time I got in touch, I was helping. He was writing a book about the latter half of the 1940s. Right. And uh, I helped him track down digital versions of some of the, the comics from that period. You know, it was kind of it was fun chatting with him a little bit about some of the oddball aspects of these comics. But, the, you know, the, the sad thing is I had no idea, and I, I wonder how much of an idea he had about how ill he was. He had been telling telling me that he'd been having a lot of back problems that really limited the amount of time he could sit at a desk and, and work and that he was experiencing a lot of discomfort, but it was such a jaw-dropping shock to to learn about his, his cancer and that it seemed to hit him so quickly. It was a shock to everyone how quickly it happened and um, just how, I don't know, how no one had a chance to really do anything for him. Um, John just was messaging me earlier. He was thinking it may be related to a blood clot found in one of Bill's lungs when he was in the hospital, which may have been related to a blood clot was found a year or so ago for which he had been treated for. He said, but, and I'm just guessing here, it may have been a new clot. Instead of dissolving, the clot in Bill's lungs broke apart. And Bill's, uh-huh. one of, you know, the, the, the mother of Bill's first child explained that the clot breaking apart was probably why Bill was doing so poorly that day. 
and they passed away about 12 hours later. So, I mean, it's just speculation. And in a way, it, yeah. it doesn't matter. It's the suddenness that's the thing. Yeah, I... And unfortunately, uh, you have a lot of... You, very sadly, you have a lot of first-hand experience with that yourself. Yes, right down to having my my cancer misdiagnosed or ignored by my primary care provider. You know, I fortunately, I got help just in time. It was really frightening and angering how close I came to kicking the bucket due to, due to one doctor pretty much ignoring, you know, ob- obvious signs that I was ill. And I can't help but wonder if a similar thing happened to Bill, if what was going on with him just wasn't properly diagnosed until it was too late. Well, he had those. He was complaining about those broken ribs for a lot, for well over a month, which seems to be past the point that a doctor would start to do more to help alleviate the problems. Yeah, uh, I kind of keep coming back to that. Like, what did they not see that was really affecting him? It, it's it's hard for me not to get really upset thinking about that. You know, some something could have been done to 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 help him. I just feel like Bill was one of these people who really enriched my life in ways I didn't expect him to, and I've been hit pretty hard by him passing away. I really did think of him as a mentor and someone who did a lot of work in areas that are meaningful to me. Um, he's about fifteen years older than I am. And his generation of comics fandom was, um, you know, probably two generations ahead of mine. But the way he was able to reconnect with his with his generation of fans was very moving to me and very kind of inspiring to get back with some of my old friends, too. I think as much as anything, too, I just reread his autobio, you know, in the last week or so as I was thinking about him. And it's just so sad that it ends with him talking about the happiness he had found with Mario right at the end, um, and then they were never able to really move forward as a couple. Yes. Yeah, I I, uh, I spoke with him a couple of times about his reconnecting with, with Mario, and you know, they were just you know, emailing all the time, and, and he was hoping they would be able to Yeah, I just feel such a sense of loss. Mm. Oh, I do too. I, I just, you know, it's like, I, I think I felt something something like what you felt as well. just felt like he was, he did have the mentor quality with me as well. Mm-hmm. And I felt like he was somebody that, if I was stuck on something or couldn't figure out an approach that I could talk with him, sometimes he would suggest an avenue I'd overlooked. As I said earlier, I think he really inspired my, imp- 
improving my research style for the Cecil Jensen project. One thing I always envy about him, too, is just his graceful way of writing. He just had this very clean, very precise, very easy style of writing that I really wish I had. Um, you know, we worked on the same series, as I said, and I would often deliver these sentences that were these long, tangled explanations of history. And I'd go back and read Bill's 1950s volume. Everything is just spelled out so cleanly and so clearly. I just admire that quality so much. It takes me a lot of work to get I, that simple. Yeah, I, I admire that too. He, you know, he was... He was very modest about his writing. It kind, of, it kind of shocked me to hear him talk a couple of times about, you know, in terms of, well, I'm, you know, I'm not a great prose stylist or anything, but I think I'm a good functional writer. That kind of modesty is a virtue because I think it, it, keeps, it keeps a writer honest. He felt himself that his writing could always be better. You know, it was it would be one thing to to tell him, oh, it it it's it reached it reached good to me, but you know, another thing for him to, to uh, I don't know, you know, it it's I think it's better to better to question if you can question your your writing from a a stance of hoping to improve upon it and not in a negative self-defeating way and I think he did that yeah I don't know about you Frank I have real trouble with that I I still go back through lines in my old book and say oh why did I say it that way or oh that that's just slightly incorrect that's not what I meant to say I'm like continually criticizing myself for that Um, no matter how many drafts I do it's never quite good enough it's a challenge of writing. I mean, you, you, we, we write because we want to communicate and we want to get what we're writing about across to, you know, people that we'll, we may never ever meet in person or know. And we, we want to make sure that what we're saying, that other people, what people get out of what we're writing is what we, we intend to get down on paper. I always found it, this sounds really pretentious, I always found it a little imposing too that I was I wrote the, you know, the first true comprehensive history of comics in the 1990s. It was very important for me to get everything right so that anything that was even slightly off would be uh, seen incorrectly. You know, feeling this burden of history in a way. And uh, I'm sure you feel that writing about Stanley or some of the other history you've done. I mean, you, you're probably writing the only work that's been that's going to be published about Elmo. It's important to get every word about that strip and Jensen right. Well, one of the maddening things about writing about comics is you just realize how little importance was assigned to this stuff back, you know, back when it was being created. It was not thought of, not really thought as having any kind of lasting value. In the case of uh, Cecil Jensen, his papers, he had papers at a 
University in Syracuse, New York, they had nothing about his comic strip work. He, he was also an editorial cartoonist, and his papers are pretty much 100% comprised of, of stuff pertaining to his editorial work. And if you looked through it, you, you would never know that he did three different comic strips during his long career. And that's exactly the kind of thing that's just hard when you're writing history. Was there a lot about Stanley that was... Did Stanley do a lot of other work, or was it he mainly a comic writer? The high majority of his work was as a comics writer, and then also as a, an artist. He probably did about a thousand pages of published comic book art. Okay. During, during a roughly a quarter century he was in the comics field. It, it, it's kind of shocking to, to think that a writer who many people consider to be the best writer mainstream comics has ever produced really thought very little of his comics work. It appears that it was just a job to him. Yeah, and like most people in his generation, I'm sure you... It's, by the way, it's the one Shelley book that I haven't read, is the, aside from his fiction book, so I'll need to pick that up, especially since you seem to think so positive of it. Well, he did a, he did a, really, he did a really good job in writing about somebody whom almost nothing is really known about. And through some of his, fan, his fandom connections... He was able to get access to some really interesting stuff from late in Stanley's life. When Stanley got the only real inkling that the work he'd done in comics had meaning to, to people and that people had hung on to it and cherished it. That part of the book is, you know, you can you can see Bill lighting up because he's got actual information and was able to interview people and, and talk about things and there's you know there's a real story there I got to admit you know as I as we're talking now I feel like I've been in the funk since I finished the 90s book back in October now you're making me thinking about uh, jumping in and writing a biography of my own it's a fascinating thing to piece together the, a person's life it's daunting. It's it. You know, if you if you stop and step back and think about it, it's like, how could I possibly do this? Yet, just gather gather pieces of information bit by bit and and start to make connections. You know, if you're fortunate, some people that that knew your subject will come out of the woodwork, and you'll be able to get another person's insight into what the subject of your work was like as a human being, what motivated them, what made them laugh, what, what frustrated them. You know, those are, those are the things that, that get harder and harder to, to do, with, particularly with older cartoonists. And if, you don't, if I don't preserve some of this, then I'm not sure anyone else will. Yeah, yeah there's, that, there's that feeling, too. It's like... Whatever, whatever I find out will be, will I hope be of value to somebody through the through the years, and at least this person's life and work won't recede on the horizon, and 
never be thought of or seen again. You know who made that comment to me recently? Of all people, was Lynn Johnston, who did the For Better or For Worse comic strip. Mm-hmm. She was wonderful, extremely gracious, and just charming as can be. Just a delightful conversation. And towards the end, she said to me, I'm glad you're working to help preserve this history because otherwise it's just going to all disappear. The next generation won't know anything about any of this historical work that's both important in its time and is important in its, in its historical context. I think that really is a risk that we are always running, especially in this um, internet-obsessed age where if it's not online, it may as well not exist. And ironically, one of the things that is helping this cause is the, the digitization of a lot of newspapers and the, and the digitization of census, uh, you know, past census. I guess the plural of census is censuses. It just sounds wrong, doesn't it? Sensei. Sensei. The fact that you can start to dig around and, and get these little bits of information about a person, you know, the, the, the mundane parts of a person's life. Yeah, and really, really bring them to life in a way that's compelling and interesting. Yeah, I think I'll pull, I might pull out that Kurtzman book again tonight and just dip back into it, too. Yeah, there, there's times where that Kurtzman book is like a Hitchcock movie, where you're just like on the edge of your seat, like, Harvey, no, no. <laughs> well, it's it, it did that thing that's really rare for me, too, where, um, so my dad was not an artistic person, but he was a professional person who continually kind of wandered from one job to the next. And it was always a great puzzle to our family why dad would never quite be settled down. And in a lot of ways, reading the stories of Kurtzman never quite being settled helped to shed just a little more light on like my perception and my seeing my dad as more of a three-dimensional figure with his positive and negative points. And, um, so, I mean, that was just, at certain points, it just really felt very familiar. These are conversations that, you know, my mom and I would have about my dad's interesting decisions he was making. And um, this willingness to never compromise. And I think that might be the power of a really good biography, too, is you'll find it um, relating to your life in unexpected ways. Reading about the ups and downs of, of Kurtzman's career, I could definitely relate it to decisions I've made in my life that I, I, I came to regret. And, you know, as I always hope with things like that is that I learn something from them and don't repeat those mistakes. In the end, that's all we can do. Yes. Just, and just you, do, do, our, do our best and try not to do anything too terrible. Well, I think that's a good point to uh, wrap this up. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention about Bill? I'm just I'm just glad I got to know him to the extent that I did, and I think he had a he had a very positive impact on my life, and he's somebody that I will always remember 
remember fondly and whose work I will always admire. And I hope his 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 books will will live on and continue to keep the subjects he wrote about alive in the eyes of the world. Oh, thank you.